Happy Sunday, family. How's it going out there in Internet land? My name is Chris, uh, one of the leaders here at West Village. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, uh, so great to have you. We've been having all kinds of new people joining us online since we've gone uh, to exclusively virtual Internet church in light of all that is happening in our world. And just want to encourage you, if you are new, if you're listening in online, just checking us out, we, we really want you to become a part of our church family. We want you to feel like you are part of the church. And the easiest way uh, to get connected or at least begin that process is just simply text your name to the number uh, that is below me here on the screen. And one of our staff will follow up and help you get connected uh, and meet some new folks. All right. I am excited for this morning. We are jumping back into a series that we have been in for some time. Uh, we've been going verse by verse through uh, the Gospel of Matthew for a number of weeks, a number of years, actually. And we took a little break uh, during the kind of COVID season to teach through the book of Esther because we felt like some of the themes in the book of Esther just really landed with what was happening for us as a church family in this moment. And we finished that up last week. So we're jumping back into the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible, grab it, open it up. You can download uh, the Bible on your phone. Go to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, and as you turn there, I just kind of want to remind us, kind of hit the reset button a little bit on what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. Uh, when you think of the Gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, there's four of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first one in the New Testament. Uh, the Gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus are functionally similar to what we would describe as biographies. They're like biographical accounts on Jesus, who Jesus is, how he lived, what he did. Uh, but there's some really important distinctions between the way that a first century gospel writer would have written a biography versus the way that we understand biography today. Uh, the way that we understand biography today is that you uh, write about somebody's life. You write about the facts. You write about the data of their life. I'm currently reading a biography written by Alistair McGrath on a man named C.S. Lewis. And, and that's just what he does. He gives you the data, the facts on C.S. Lewis's life with very little commentary on or interpretive commentary on what those facts may or may not mean. Uh, the gospel accounts, the gospel biographical accounts are, are very different than that. They, they, while they do give facts and data and the, the historical accounts and records that are written down there are indeed true, they're facts, they're real. Uh, there's a way that the, the biblical authors, the gospel authors write that sort of sets them apart from a traditional biography. They essentially are trying to make larger theological points. And so what they will do is they will, uh, they will put certain sets of stories in a particular sequence of events in order to make a larger theological point or in order to make a larger uh, point about who Jesus is. Uh, possibly a helpful analogy, one that we've been using as we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, is the show This Is Us. Uh, if you are familiar with the show, This Is Us, it's a great show. Uh, it wins all kinds of awards on television, hard not to cry at pretty much every episode. But the show, This Is Us, is essentially giving an account of a particular family. Uh, but it doesn't just give you like straight facts about the family. What it does is it tells the story of the family by going back in history, by going forward into the future. There's a number of different timelines and storylines. And, and what ends up happening is the, the, the writers of the, the story or of the show, rather, this is us. They pick out different aspects and characteristics and parts of characters and stories all to make one larger point that that particular episode is trying to highlight. Well, that's very much how the gospel of Matthew, all the gospels for that matter, have been written. 
And so where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16 is actually pretty significant. Chapter 16 is one of the hinge chapters of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing all of his ministry uh, in a region called Galilee. That's really close to the area where he was born. It's a predominantly Jewish part of uh, where he lived, of that particular region. Uh, he'd been doing ministry there. It's a small, kind of insignificant part of that particular region. But in chapter 16, things shift, and Jesus leaves Galilee, and he starts to head towards Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the religious epicenter of that region. Uh, and this functionally is the beginning of the end for Jesus. This is him heading towards Jerusalem. And the reason he's going to Jerusalem is because uh, he intends to give up his life. He intends to go to the cross. He intends to fulfill the work that God the Father, his Father, has sent him to do. And so chapter 16 is where this story begins to swing. And where we find ourselves here in uh, chapter 16, we're going to be in verses 13 to 20. This is really like... This is a great text to be coming back into because this is like the zenith moment of chapter 16. And this isn't the high point of the gospel of Matthew. This certainly isn't the high point of the life and ministry of Jesus. But this is a very significant moment nonetheless. And this is indeed one of my favorite passages. So I'm super pumped up to preach it. So let's get to work here. Matthew chapter 16, picking up in verse 13. Here is what Matthew records. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples who do people say that the Son of Man is? So I want you to imagine the scene. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling. Like I've already said, they've left Galilee. They're heading towards Jerusalem. They enter into this region known as Caesarea Philippi. Uh, now Caesarea Philippi, very uh, Gentile region. Not a lot of Jewish people there. Not a lot of religious people there. And here, Jesus chooses to ask a very significant question. You can see it in verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is. Now, when Jesus uses that phrase, the Son of Man, it's a loaded term. It's got all kinds of uh, biblical backstory. Jesus uses it a lot in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, but it's a term to describe himself. He, he's describing himself as the sent one of God, the Messiah. And so you can imagine the scene here, okay? Jesus and his disciples have been doing ministry in Galilee. They've been, Jesus has been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been healing people. He's been performing miracles. He's had a number of encounters with, with people outside of the family of God, with the religious leaders. And in a sense, what Jesus is doing here is he's asking his own disciples, the 12 who have been following him, what do people in Galilee think of me? Pretty important question. Uh, but what's even more important than just the question is where the question is being asked. Uh, we know this, right? That questions are important, but a lot of times where a question is asked uh, really helps fill out the context of the question that is being asked. So, uh, for example, uh, if you have ever been married, there's a question that comes along with getting married. That's a pretty significant question, right? Will you marry me? It's a good starter. What's really important about that question? Where it takes place, right? If you texted your gal and you're like, hey... Uh, just wondering, you know, I'm up late, nachos, kind of bugging me I got. Just wonder if you want to get married. What do you think? Not a great way to do it, right? But if, you, if, you, if you're going to be romantic, if you're going to do this the right way, you're going to go all out, you're going to probably rent, I don't know, clothes and food and find a cool place to do it and make a big scene of it. Why? Because it's a big deal and it's a big question. Well, the same thing is true here for Jesus. Where he asks this question is just as, if not more significant than the question he's asking. 
So what do we need to know about Caesarea Philippi? Well, as I've already said, it's a Gentile uh, city. Uh, not only is it a Gentile city, it's a city that was known for its pagan worship. Uh, so if you can imagine with me the kind of landscape or geographical kind of region, Jesus and his disciples were heading towards Caesarea Philippi, which means they would have been outside of the city. They would have been looking at the city. And when you look at Caesarea Philippi, it's, it's right at the foot of a giant mountain. At the foot of that mountain, there were a number of different temples. Uh, and those temples were all set up to... Uh, to be places of worship to various gods. One of the gods would have been Caesar. Caesar was the ruler of the Roman Empire, but he was functionally worshipped like a god. Uh, one of the other temples that was set up there was uh, the worship for the worship of Baal. He, again, pagan god. And then the other temple was a temple that was set up to, to worship uh, a Greek god by the name of Pan. Now, he was the most significant god in the, the temple, or in the city, rather, the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and, and he was, uh, the, uh, to say the least, the type of worship that occurred around Pan was, uh, it, it was weird. Uh, so the, the, the way that this Greek god was depicted was that he had the upper torso of a man. So from the waist up, he looked like a normal man. But from the waist down, he looked like a goat. He had four legs. He had a tail. Kind of like Mr. Tumnus from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. And the way that the Greek god Pan was worshipped, again, which, which took up much, it was kind of the, the dominant style of worship that occurred in uh, the city of Caesarea Philippi, is that uh, the men would go to the temple for worship. There'd be temple prostitutes. They would have uh, sex with the temple prostitutes. And that was a way of paying homage to the Greek god Pan. Of course, they would have to pay for this. This was functional prostitution. It was a functional brothel. But not only that, they believed that by having sexual intercourse with, with goats, that this in some way would bring uh, pleasure to the Greek god Pan. It would appease him. And so this is the kind of activity, it's hard to believe, but this is the kind of activity that was taking place in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, so you can imagine that uh, Caesarea Philippi was... You know, it was not the kind of place that you would go to if you were a good Jewish boy or girl. In fact, the rabbis, you know, they, they, they prescribed that if you were Jewish to be in right standing with God, you would not visit the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, there's a whole sermon here about why this is the place where Jesus decides that he's going to have this conversation with his disciples. It's fairly, fairly significant. I won't go too far into this, but here's what I want you to see, that, that there's this beautiful reality about the life and ministry of Jesus, that, he, that there is no place that is too unclean for Jesus to go. There is no place that is too far gone for Jesus to reach. There is no person that is outside of the purview of God. There is no, no act that can be done that can disqualify a person or a group of people from the grace of God. Jesus, functionally, by coming here to ask this question, is saying, like, I'm not defined by their sin. In fact, I'm the one who can come in and heal and forgive their sin. But it's here, up against this pantheon of various gods, ideas, ideologies, and worldviews, that Jesus chooses to ask the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, what Jesus is doing here, make no mistake about it, is he's pitting himself up against all of these other gods. He's pitting himself up against all these other worldviews. He's pitting himself up against all these other ideologies, all these other isms, if you will. He's saying, I'm not one of them. I'm distinct from them. And then look at the response of Jesus's 
disciples. Here's what it says in verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So his disciples hear the question, they, they, they're picking up what Jesus is throwing down here, and they give an answer that's actually kind of a flattering answer. Right? They say, well, here's what we're hearing, Jesus, as people have watched you do ministry, as they've seen you perform miracles, it, it seems like they think you're one of the prophets. Prophets were well thought of. Prophets were loved. Prophets were, were, were held in high esteem. And so the disciples are saying, Jesus, people think you're a great guy. Uh, they think you're a religious leader. They think you're some sort of religious guru. They think you have some, some good offerings for the people. Sounds a lot like how our current culture wants to try and define Jesus, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, I would say the average person, not all people, but the average person would, on some level, have nice things to say about Jesus. If you were just to take a poll of the average person on the street, most people would have nice things to say about Jesus. They would say that Jesus was a good religious teacher. They would say that he was uh, maybe a moral leader. He's a good example. He's, he's, a, he's a, you know, a religious guru, someone who should be followed, someone who should be uh, you know, held in high regard, held in high esteem. They, they, they would say flattering things about him. But here's the problem. And here's what we're going to see as we go through Matthew chapter 16 and the words that Jesus says to his disciples. That's not how Jesus viewed himself. So don't forget where Jesus is standing as he asks the question. Don't forget who Jesus is standing in front of, what all that represents. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not just a nice idea in the marketplace of ideas. I'm distinct. I'm different. I'm other than I'm set apart. And then look at what happens next. Here's what we see in verse 15. Jesus says, he looks at his disciples, okay? Don't, don't miss this, friends. He says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And now notice that Jesus asks this question twice. Whenever a biblical author records something with repetition, the reason for that is because they're trying to make a point of emphasis. And so the fact that Jesus asks this question twice actually indicates that it's a significant question. Notice when Jesus first asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? How does he start? He starts by asking sort of generally, how, who do those people out there say that I am? But here he asks a very specific question. Not who do they say, but who do you say? He moves from the general to the specific. He moves from out there to functionally in here, in our hearts, in your heart. Who do you say that I am? Now, don't miss this. Jesus asking this question to this group of people in this place, repeating it this many times, is his way of saying that this is an important question. I think it was last week where I said that the question of who Jesus is, your, your willingness to wrestle with that question, who do you say that Jesus is, is the most important question that you could ever ask. That there is no question that is more significant than the question, who do you say that I am? The question that Jesus is asking here. 
And I think our proclivity can be to push that question aside, to put it off. Uh, some of us will do this by just distracting ourselves, right? We get so busy, so focused on the worries or the cares of this life. Uh, we start to worry about, uh, you know, how many, how many square feet our house is or what year our car is or how many zeros there are behind our portfolio at the end of our portfolio. And these things distract us. And we just keep pushing this question aside. We keep pushing this question aside. But I want you to think about how foolish that is with me for just a second. We spend hours, we lose sleep, we worry, we fret, worrying about how big our house is, how much money we're going to make, all these, these temporary things that are, that are so insignificant that, you know, the house that you're fixing up and spending hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of dollars on, at some point, someone is going to put a sign in the front lawn and the, the little write-up on the real estate, is going to, real estate ad is going to say, a real fixer-upper. That's what's going to become of your house. Uh, one day, the really nice car that you are driving that you spent tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, some sucker like me is going to come and buy it for $600 because I don't have any money and that's how much I spend on cars. The point that I'm trying to make is these things, they're temporary, but your soul is eternal. You see, the question that Jesus is asking here is, is an eternal question. It's a, it's a question of your, your eternal destiny. It's a question of, of transcendence. It's a question about God. Does he exist? Is he real? Has he revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus? Is Jesus actually God? Is he worth following? Is he worth giving your life to? How much time have you invested in thinking about, praying about, seeking the answer to that question? And notice what Jesus doesn't say here, right? He doesn't say, what does somebody else think? He says, what do you think? Uh, so you might, you might have been born into a family that goes to church. Like we tell our kids this all the time. Like this is your decision. You have to decide whether you're, go you're going to follow Jesus or not. Jesus doesn't say, hey, uh, you know, I'm wondering if your parents went to church and you've inherited the faith of your parents or not. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, I'm wondering if you've been playing religious games with God for a long time. Or, hey, I'm wondering if you uh, go to Christian school. Or, hey, I'm wondering if you go to church or if you serve on, you know, some team in your church or you're part of a community group or you're part of a DNA group or you give money away. It doesn't say any of that. Wondering if you listen to Praise 106.5. Haven't slipped a 106.5 joke in there. Got to get one in. It's been a while. Hey, I'm wondering if you've been a good person. Wondering if you've been sincere in your faith. Doesn't ask that. Doesn't ask it. He says, who do you say that I am? What about you? Friends, let that, let that question just, let it just sit there for a minute. Let it ring in your heart. Who is Jesus? Who is he? You know, the, the mistake we're going to make is in thinking that we have a long time to answer this question. We don't. There's an urgency to the question that Jesus is asking here. See, most of us, when we think about life, we think we're going to live to be 100. 
we're going to die fat, rich, and happy in our sleep. And so we look at our life and we think, well, I got lots of time to figure that stuff out. But the reality is, you don't. I mean, just a, just a few weeks ago, four, three, four months ago now, uh, my dad was on vacation visiting my brother. I talked to him on the phone on Saturday, 63 years old, super healthy, took care of himself, exercised, ate the right way. Like he, he was the epitome of health. Uh, the next day, takes my two-year-old niece for a walk in the stroller, has a heart attack on the side of the road and dies. Gone. Still find it somewhat unbelievable that that occurred. By the grace of God, my dad knows Jesus, came to faith in Jesus much later in his life, but he loves him. He dealt with this question. He wrestled with this question. But the reality is, life is short. There are no guarantees on how long you live. And as somebody who's starting to get older, I'm just realizing, man, time goes so quick. And this question that Jesus asks, friends, it's the most important question. Who do you say that I am? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And then we get an answer to that question. Look at verse 16. Simon, Peter, answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Simon answers the question that Jesus asks. Don't miss his answer. He says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is a loaded phrase that Simon uses here to describe his answer to this question. Uh, the word Messiah literally means Christ, and Christ was not uh, Jesus' last name. It's a word that means the anointed one. And so we get this picture where Simon here is describing Jesus as the one whom God promised he would send to save his people. Not that dissimilar to the phrase that Jesus uses back in verse 13 to describe himself when he calls himself the Son of Man. Peter is saying, you are indeed the one who is sent by God to save, to rescue, to redeem God's people. Uh, and then he refers to him as the son of the living God. In other words, he is the one that has been sent by God. And, and so we get this picture here where, where Peter says, you know, a lot of people think you're one of the prophets. A lot of people think you are, you know, a, a religious guru or a, a spiritual leader or a great moral teacher or a great example, right? Like that's what we talked about in verse 14. He said, but you're not that. You are not just a way. You are the way. You are not just a truth. You are the truth. You are not just a one way, one path that leads to the top of the mountain. You are the path that leads to the top of the only mountain. And in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now, the, the spiritual milieu is this kind of postmodern religion of Canadian nicety where everyone is allowed to have a little piece of the truth, but we, you know, we, we kind of just want to keep those conversations off to the side because we're so desperately afraid of offending one another. But here's the reality. Peter comes and he says, Jesus, you are set apart. You are different than all other religious leaders, ideas, philosophies. You are the one truth. The one truth. 
For some of us, that's a tough pill to swallow. We, we hear that and we think about the world that we live in and a whole litany of questions come rushing in and those are good questions. They need to be asked. They need to be talked about. But make no mistake about it here. Peter is declaring that Jesus is God. And then notice what Jesus says next. Look at verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. What does Jesus say? Well, what does Jesus not say? Jesus say, no, 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 no. Don't put that on me. Don't put those exclusive claims on me. I'm not like that. I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to start a fight at the dinner table. That's not what he says. He says, you're right. This is Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you because this has been revealed to you by my father in heaven. In other words, you are right. Uh, There's many people who uh, think of Jesus. There's many scholars who think of Jesus and they say things like Jesus has never, he never taught that he was God, that that was something that was put on his followers or put on him by his followers that he himself never claimed to be God. Eh, Wrong. Peter says it, Jesus receives it and says that, Peter is blessed because of it. Uh, This weekend, this past weekend, my family, we watched a movie, The Da Vinci Code. And Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, it's a bad book. It's a worse movie, but we wanted to watch it, so we watched it. Uh, And in Dan Brown's uh, book, movie, he kind of puts out this theory that, that Jesus never intended to pit himself as a god, but this was something that the Emperor Constantine came up with as a, a, a way of, you know, kind of unifying the region that he was governing over, Rome at the time. And so at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, as a result of political expediency, Constantine came in and he said, listen, guys, here's what we're going to do. The Christians are taking over. We're just going to name him as God. And then that way we don't have any fighting or strife within our nation. He's not really God. This was just something that was done by Constantine in 325. And as a result, we've all believed it since then. Eh, Wrong. It's not true. Jesus says that he is God. He doesn't say he's a way. He doesn't say he's an idea among the marketplace of ideas. He doesn't say he's a path that leads to the top of the mountain. He says he's the way. He's the supreme idea among the marketplace of ideas. And he is the path that leads to the top of the only mountain. And we hear this and something happens in our modern sensibilities where this just rubs us the wrong way. We all love, we love the sappy, religious, sentimental Jesus who gives everyone a participation ribbon and gives everyone a hug and he's holding a baby in one hand and a lamb in the other and he has a blue Uh, you know, beauty pageant sash across his chest and he's just loving everyone and he's happy all the time, accepting of everyone. But when this Jesus comes on the scene, 
It rubs us the wrong way. We, we, we don't like it. In fact, we, we want to reject it. And, and I think a really good question to ask is why? Why does Jesus pit himself like this? Why does he say this about himself? I mean, in 20 years of pastoral ministry, 20 years of preaching the gospel, preaching the Bible, 20 years, 20 plus years now following Jesus and having dialogues with people that don't know Jesus. This is the number one question that comes up. This is what they call the exclusivity of Christ, right? Christ alone, the only supreme truth that leads to the only supreme God. Why? Well, look at what he says. Look at verse 17. Look at the first word he says in reply to Simon. He says, blessed. Blessed are you. That word blessed can be translated also, uh, the Greek can be translated into the English to mean flourishing. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, I think we were 2012 when we were in Matthew chapter 5 and we were teaching through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus comes in and he lays out the first part of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. And the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom. And the Beatitudes are this beautiful section whereby Jesus talks about what it looks like to be a citizen in his kingdom. And the Beatitudes all start with blessed. Blessed are you if, blessed are you if, blessed are you if. And in every case, what Jesus is trying to portray to us is that your life will flourish. It will go well if you live a certain way. And what Jesus is saying here to Simon is, Simon, because of your declaration that I am the Messiah, the son of the living God, because of your understanding, your willingness to believe, because the father has revealed to you who I actually am, blessed are you. In other words, you will flourish because of this belief. I've already talked about this biography I'm reading by Alistair McGrath or uh, written by Alistair McGrath on a man named C.S. Lewis. But C.S. Lewis, who uh, is one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time, he came to faith much later in his life. Uh, And he wrote a book, uh, everyone should read it at some point, called Mere Christianity. And he had this analogy, it's been kind of dubbed as man and the machine. And in the book Mere Christianity, what what C.S. Lewis is trying to do is he's trying to posit this this argument that the Christian life is the life that makes the most sense out of the lived human experience, kind of experientially, but also, uh, you know, informing our intellect. And he has this great line in here. I want to read this quote to you because I think it helps us make some sense out of what Jesus is saying here by calling Peter blessed or saying that his life will flourish as a result of his statement here. Here's what Lewis writes. He says, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, talking about Adam and Eve, was the idea that they could be like gods. They could set up their own, set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. In other words, what Lewis is saying here is that that there is this reality where we don't want to be defined by one ultimate truth. 
Just like when Jesus comes at us and says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As he says in John chapter 4, verse, chapter 14, verse 6, we recoil against that because we don't want to have to submit to a God. And so what we do instead is we set ourselves outside of that truth and we become like our own gods. But here's the problem, and this is what Lewis is hearkening at. He's saying there is this reality that there's something in us that longs to know an ultimate truth. We, in other words, we long to know that there is a way. And when we continue to try and forge our own path, forge our own truth, try and forge this thing out our own way, it always ends in the same place. Death, destruction, brokenness. I mean, just take six seconds and look around our world right now. That's what we see. It was true of our first ancestors, as Lewis says in Genesis chapter 3, and it's been true ever since. But Lewis goes on, and here's what he goes on to say. He says, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol or gas, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now listen to this. This is good. And now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits. Sorry, he himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. And Lewis here isn't talking about religion in the bad sense of the word. He's talking about religion in the sense of devotion to the truth that we've been talking about. And here's why. Listen to this. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. In other words, Peter, by this declaration that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God, you will be blessed because you found me. You found the God who made you. You found the God who knows you. You found the God who loves you. And because of that, you have found ultimate fulfillment. Your life will flourish. You no longer have to seek, strive, try to find contentment and happiness because I'm contentment and happiness. When you realize that there's a God who made you, a God who knows you, a God who loves you, a God who, as we'll see, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, right? That's where this story is going. And what happens in Jerusalem? Jesus lays his life down on the cross for Simon, for Peter, because he loves him and he dies to have his sins forgiven and to take away his guilt and to take away his shame and to restore and repair his relationship with God. Because of that, Peter flourishes. He experiences the fullness, the ultimate satisfaction that comes from knowing God. So again, the question Jesus is asking us is, who do you say that I am? Goes on verse 18. Here's Jesus continuing on speaking to Simon. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Uh, now, Jesus here does something significant. He changes his name from Simon to Peter. His name was Simon Peter. And here Jesus says, now you're called Peter. That word Peter literally means rock. 
Uh, and here Jesus is using a bit of a play on words. It says, and I tell you that you are rock and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, the gates of death will not prevail against it. Now there's all kinds of controversy around what this verse is actually meaning. And I don't want to get too far into the controversy. There's kind of a number of opinions about what Jesus is saying. Some people would say that what, uh, what Jesus is saying here is that Peter is the rock. Peter's the rock on which the church will be built. Other people don't like that idea. And so they say, well, actually, no, it's the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is going to build the church. And then others would say, well, actually, Jesus is the rock on which the church will be built. And here's, here's, I'll just tell you what I think. There is no way that you can read this text in its original language and not see that what Jesus is talking about here is that Peter is indeed the rock on whom the church will be built. Now, some of us hear that. We might go, wait a minute. I thought the church was all about Jesus. Well, look at what he says here. He says, I, Jesus says, I will build my church. In other words, yes, Peter, you're the rock and, and on you, the church will be built. Now think about this with me for a second. Just storyline of the Bible, end of the gospel of Luke at post-resurrection of Jesus. Jesus comes to Peter and what does he say to him? He says three times, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. Comes to Peter and he says, I want you to feed my sheep. Fast forward to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 post-resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Spirit comes, drops. Who stands up and preaches the first sermon in the early church? It's Peter. What does Peter preach about? Preaches about Jesus, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. What happens? 3,000 people on that day get saved and are baptized. And until the apostle Paul comes on the scene, Peter is the functional leader, first among equals in the early church. But that doesn't mean the church isn't built on the confession of Peter, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it also doesn't mean that Jesus is going to build up the church on himself. I mean, Peter or Paul rather says that many times in the New Testament, he refers to Jesus as the capstone or the cornerstone on whom the church is built. But make no mistake about it. Peter is indeed the one that the church was built on his, his position of leadership and his authority that was given to him by Jesus. And then look at what Jesus says uh, next in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, what is Jesus talking about here? Now, now follow this with me for a second. What do keys do? Keys are designed to lock and unlock things. Now think about the imagery that Jesus is using. If you go back to verse 18, what does Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then here Jesus says, now, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys. Keys representative of what? Authority and responsibility. Keys that do what? Unlock. Unlock what? They unlock gates. There are people that are bound, verse 19, behind the gates of death, behind the gates of hell. And Peter, I am going to give you authority and responsibility, the keys to unlock the gate, to open the gate and loosen, verse 19, the people from death and hell. What a picture. What a picture that Peter has been given this responsibility, but it hasn't just been given to Peter, it's been given to us. It's been given to the church. The church has been given the responsibility, the keys, the authority, and the responsibility 
to unlock the gates of hell? And what are the keys? Keys are what Peter says. You are the Christ. You are the, you are the Messiah. Son of the living God. It's the gospel. It's the hope of Jesus. It's the death of Jesus on the cross in our place for our sins. It's the promise of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And just as he rose, we too will one day rise. And it's, it's the promise that he will return again to set everything right. That is what has the authority and what gives us the responsibility. That's the keys that unlock the gates of hell. And it's been given to you, and it's been given to me. It's been given to the church. Uh, last week, I, my wife Kelly and I, we went out to Souk, uh, and we got to have dinner with uh, our friends Matt and Bree. Matt and Bree uh, have moved here. They moved here just before all COVID stuff happened, and literally, I think a week or two Sunday, a Sunday or two before we were not able to meet. Again, they moved here. They've moved here because they want to uh, be trained up to, by God's grace, one day potentially plant a church, possibly out in Souk. That is our prayer. That is what we are moving towards. And Kelly and I went out there to spend some time with them. Uh, Matt and Bree have a unique setup where they are building a house on a vacant lot that is literally right across the street from the house they are renting. So you can literally sit on their front porch and look over across the street at the house that they are building and the street they live on all full of new young families. Uh, There's a cul-de-sac at the end. It's a real hub of community. And we got there early and uh, Kelly went inside to hang out with Bree and I hung out with Matt for a bit while he was finishing up. And in the half hour or so that we were out there, two, three neighbors came over. People were coming to drop things off. And one neighbor was going, hey man, I want to hang out with you tomorrow. Looking forward to swinging the hammer. And Matt's been you know, real intentional about connecting with a bunch of the neighbors. They've had tons of people in their home, even during COVID, like social distancing, they've been able to like really connect with their neighbors and have some really neat relationship building opportunities. And we were just having a powwow chat talking about Jesus and his mission and his church. And there was this moment where I just, I don't, I hope I never forget this moment where I looked at Bree and I just said, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about all this? And there's kind of this like pause and she kind of looked out the window overlooking her street. She looked back at us and she said, these people, they need a church. They need a church right here on this street. They need to hear about Jesus. They need to know about Jesus. And I heard that and I was just like, oh, Jesus, thank you so much that there are people that you have placed on this street that have this passion for your glory. They understand that they have been given the keys, the authority and the responsibility to unlock the gates of hell. Their neighbors are are bound by the gates of hell. Your neighbors are bound by the gates of hell. Your coworkers are bound by the gates of hell. My neighbors, my friends, your neighbors, your friends, they are bound by the gates of hell. And we have the keys. Church. We have the keys. Jesus is saying, I've given you authority and responsibility. You don't have to do it alone, right? That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 28. I will be with you until the very end of the age. 
But make no mistake about it, we have to go. We have to tell people. We have to share. We have to take the keys out of our pocket and unlock the gates of hell by sharing the gospel with those that don't yet know Jesus. Amen. Amen. Verse 20 ends like this. This is a strange verse, okay? Then he, being Jesus, ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You're like, wait a minute. That seems a little backwards. We just had all this. I will build my church talk. The gates of hell will not prevail. I'm giving you the keys, the authority, the responsibility. Go take the hill for the case of Jesus, for the cause of Christ, for the mission of God. Oh, and by the way, don't tell anyone. Why? Well, we've already seen Verse 13 and 14, people don't understand who Jesus is yet. His mission is not yet complete. His mission will not be complete until he goes to the cross, resurrects from the grave, and ascends into heaven. And up to this point, Jesus has been grossly misunderstood. And what Jesus doesn't want is for people to misunderstand him. He doesn't want our nice ideas. He doesn't want our sappy, sentimental pictures of who he is. He wants our hearts. He wants your heart, friend. He wants you to come to this place where you, like Peter, when asked, who do you say that I am, would cry out, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus, you are God and I believe in you. And so I will close with the question that Jesus so desperately wants all of us to answer, and that is, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. You love us enough to ask us the hard questions. You want us to come to this place where we would know you. You want us to come to this place where we would give our lives to you. So for those of us who are listening to this, we don't know who you are, Jesus. I pray, Spirit, right now, I pray you would speak. You would speak in a powerful way that would, that would cause and compel our hearts to believe. Just as the Father revealed it to Peter, would you reveal it to us right now? And for those of us who, by God's grace, already know who you are, we believe, we're walking, we're loving, we're following. Lord Jesus, would you remind us that we have the keys, the keys to the gates of hell. You've given us, you've entrusted us with the gospel. We've got to tell. We've got to tell people. We've got to share with people. They need to know, just as this is the most urgent question that non-believers can answer right now, this is the most urgent message that we have that we just got to tell people. They need to know. They might not even know. They need to ask the question. And so, Spirit, we pray, even in this season of your church being scattered, that you would give us the grace and the urgency to proclaim the hope, the hope of Jesus. We pray in his good name and all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.